This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. It's always a privilege to be in God's presence, isn't it, with fellow brothers and sisters or even friends to hear and explore and expound on God's Word, believing that God's Word will interact with us. So let's begin this time by committing ourselves to God and ask that He will engage us even on this darkest journey that we'll read. Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You for this passage that we have just read, A Dark Journey, and some of us are familiar with dark journeys. Father, we pray that as your word uh, is being explained and as your word engaged with our hearts, God, that we see that this is not, not just a story for David, but it's a story for all of us. In Jesus' name, Amen. There's an author by the name Sean Covey. He once said, We are free to choose our path, but we don't or we can't choose the consequences that come with them. We are free to choose our paths, but we can't choose the consequences that come with them. Have you ever suffered the consequences of a wrong action or sin? Have you ever suffered the consequences of a wrong action or sin? It could be just eating questionable street food on your holiday it could be committing traffic offense, hopefully that it was just a fine. Or it could be sinning against God that leads you into a very dark journey on this side of life. Have you ever suffered the consequences of a wrong action or sin? In chapter 15 of Second Samuel, it is the story of King David's darkest journey. Where, the, where he suffered the consequence of the sin he had against God back in chapter 11, his adultery, his murder, ultimately his holding on to God's throne. And it will happen through the betrayal of the beloved one, his own son, Absalom. So now I invite us to step into the story with me. If you have your Bible, keep it open uh, as we look at this together. In fact, last week we read in chapter 14, verse 25 about Absalom this way, it's, he says, uh, it says, In all Israel, Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. That was the description of how people look at Absalom. He's not like his kind of old dad who has perhaps kind of lost his shine, one battle, too many scars over his bodies, and perhaps too burdened by his sins. Absalom was different. He was kind of a nicely packaged prince. He was flawless even without Photoshop of that time. In fact, it provides a kind of halo effect on him that many who praise Absalom for his beauty, for his success, for his likability, they will soon be drawn to him as one who is wise, who is kind, who is caring, and all the wonderful characteristics of a movie star or perfect king. Now, Absalom was going to up his hello effect before executing his treacherous plan to betray the one that gave him life, his dad. And this is what happens. In the course of time, verse 1, Absalom had a chariot, 
horses and with 50 men running ahead of him. You know, Absalom really makes the road of Jerusalem very busy. Whenever he walks by, there's no doubt everyone knows royalty is passing. Well, not David, Absalom is passing. He was more glorious than his dad who has built up the city of David. He was more loved by people because David by now perhaps he looked kind of dull and boring when he, when he journeys the road of Jerusalem if he even does it. But if that's not enough, we are told Absalom got up early in the morning every day. He's kind of, that's the good trait of a hardworking celebrity, isn't it? Getting up early, he was stood by the side of the road for the, at the gates where Jer- of Jerusalem where people come in. And Israelites, whether from near or far of David's kingdom, wherever they come to the entrance, Absalom will be there to greet them with great compassion. He'll say, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. Wherever complaints uh, comes to the king, Absalom will be there. And his slogan in today's term will be, you are right, but there's no one to help you. You are right as well, but there is no one to help you. If only I am the king. Well, if you look at verse 4, he didn't really say, if only I'm the king. Right? That will kind of cut short his time. He says, if only I am the judge. But the, his- the background of this is, is, is this, isn't it? In Israel, the days of the judges were long over. The last judge was Samuel. And Samuel was the last of the judges. And with the rise of the kings, judgment no longer is in the hands of any judge, but in the hands of the king. So when, when Absalom says, if only... I was the judge. He's kind of able to say what he wanted to say without putting himself in danger. Right? He's basically saying, if I'm the king, your wish will become a reality. He did that for four years. And Absalom, with his good looks and politically attractive compassion, stole the hearts of the Israelites from David. Absalom's treachery was gaining momentum. As you read on, he was gaining supporters from every tribe of David's kingdom. He was getting supporters from people inside and outside of the court. And the time has come for Absalom to make his final moves. And this is where we read in verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. Because I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Why? Why Hebron? Hebron was the town of Abraham. Hebron was the town where David was first made king of Judah. Hebron was the place where Absalom was born. What better place to end the kingship of David and the rise of a new king? So the time has come. Absalom came to the king's presence. He stated his request to leave Jerusalem. And if this kind of scene is a movie, you'll hear ominous music going dun 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 dun. Because just two chapters ago, the same thing was happening. Absalom was at the court and he says, Dad, can I go to um, Baal Hazor for a ship-sharing celebration? Bring some brothers and sisters, have fun. And there... He revealed his hand. He killed the crown prince. So now, this time around, he says, Dad, can I go to Hebron 
His plan was not to kill another son of David. His plan was to kill David. This was the place that he would gather his troops, declare himself king, and return to kill David. In fact, if you read this account, it's amazing that even David's most trusted counselor by the name Ahithophel, the Gideonite, he kind of managed to apply leave from the court, go to his own hometown, Gilor, so that he can go from there to Hebron for the uprising. But David was blinded by all of this, isn't it? He was blinded by his guilt, blinded by his weakness for his children, perhaps by God. He was so oblivious, and he gave his blessings to Absalom in verse 9. Go in peace. That will perhaps be the last time that they will see each other. And off went Absalom to Hebron. But by now as we read this plot that unfolds in 2 Samuel, we realize that there are actually two hands at work. There are actually two plans at work. Because on one hand, this is a carefully developed evil plan by Absalom. And no doubt with the help of Ahithophel, Absalom was, has drawn, kind of he's drawn his sword against his own father, David. He plans to overthrow David and build his own kingdom, a kingdom that is fed and f- built upon power hunger, fame-thirsty, self-serving, hatred-filled betrayer, and those that are like him, his comrades. So on one hand, this is a carefully developed evil plan by Absalom. But by now we have read, there is another hand, a hand of justice that was there, declared by God in 2 Samuel 12. Because God had already said, the sword shall never leave and depart from your house, David, because you have despised me. And God's plan was to bring judgment on David's sin. So we see these two plans, the evil plan of Absalom, the betrayer, the judgment plan of the righteous God. And we see on some occasions in our life, isn't it, that these two at work, but in many occasions we don't see that at work, but it's still happening. That God's hand is always above, even when evil is moving. So even now, God will use the evil plan of Absalom to kind of execute the judgment on David's sin. But then not only that, God is going to use the evil plan of Absalom to awaken David. That David will wake up and realize that he needs to desperately come back to God. Because it is God who forgives, it is God who restores. So as we kind of trace the steps of Absalom until he kind of steps out into the darkness, I think may we be deeply warned by David of the consequences of sin. And may we be deeply horrified by Absalom of the evil that's in his heart that goes unchecked. We'll hear more about Absalom the betrayer next week, but we must move on for David is not going to sit and wait. So look with me to verse 13. In fact, pack your bags with David because we are leaving Jerusalem. Verse 13, A messenger came and told David, The hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom. Then David said to all his officials who were with him in Jerusalem, Come, we must flee, or none of us will escape from Absalom. We must leave immediately, or he will move quickly to overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. 
No, it, it's kind of a sudden scene that as if the news about Absalom kind of wakes David up from his deep slumber, his downness, his kind of oblivious um, kingship over the past years. And he became that sharp, decisive, fully aware king and leader. So his senses came back. He said, everyone, listen up. We must go. You can imagine David giving the orders, pack stuff, quick. Only the necessary. Bring everyone. Everyone. Except for ten concubines. The sword of Absalom is coming. If we do not leave, his sword will run over us. And so the king's loyal officials kind of heard the command. And they say in verse 15, Your servants are ready to do whatever our lord the king chooses. So the king, his house, set out, except for the ten concubines, to take care of the palace. Presumably that David intends that he will come back. So he leaves ten concubines in the palace. So the king set out and all the people following him, and they halt at the edge of the city, and all his men marched past him. This was going to be the darkest journey of God's anointed king. As David's men kind of marched past him, as David kind of looked back at Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, the Mount Zion of God, the place where the ark of God rests in the tabernacle, the place where God had promised, your kingdom, David, will last forever, the place where God said, your son is going to build my temple. As David looked at it, and as the soldiers passed by, wasn't it just too long, not too long ago that kind of David defeated the fearful enemies of the Israelite? Didn't he just rescue them from the desperate hands of the Philistines? And didn't he establish the kingdom such as the rest of the nations were afraid of them? How did it come to this point where the people of Israel wants to kill the hand that has fed them, that has protected them, that has loved them. As David takes his last and darkest journey, this darkest journey, we will see David facing three encounters in the next rest of the passage that will awakens his faith in God to do the right things. Now as this suffering king, he confronts these three encounters that we'll read, his faith in God will cause him to review three things. He'll review his compassion of God. He'll review, he will review his reverence for God and he, will re, and he will review his dependence on God. As he encounters three different groups of people, David will review the compassion of God, his reverence for God, and his dependence on God. So let us follow the footsteps of David. In fact, kind of lean on a little bit, kind of listen to his conversation, and also... Take note of the response of the faithful people who come and speak to him. So look at the first encounter of David that is with Etai the Gittite from verses 20, from 19 to 23. Look at that with me. Now as, Jesus, uh, as David stood at the city edge for one last look, his man marched past, his bodyguards, the Keratites and the Palatites kind of marched past bravely. Then came the Gittites. The Gittites were foreigners who have kind of submitted themselves to David's kingship from Gav not too long ago. And as they passed David, David stopped them. He said to Itai the Gittite, who presumably was the leader, he said this, Why should you come along with me or with us? 
go back. Go back and stay with King Absalom. Now why did David say that to Itai the Gittite? Because David had compassion on them. No, David, in fact, if you read on, he even tried to provide an excuse for them so they can leave without feeling kind of embarrassed. David said um, to Itai the Gittite, no, you are foreigners, you're kind of exiles for a long time. You have only come to me yesterday. You came to me for a cover, but I tell you now I've got nothing for you. Go back. Go back to where you can still call home. Don't you have children? Those that kind of starting to know Jerusalem as their home? Why make them travel? Bring your family back. Go back to the people's king, to King Absalom. In the time when David needed fighting men the most, the compassion of God in him could not make him get them to suffer with him. He, he could not get the Gittites to have suffered enough to go with him, for it's not their fight. Or so David thought. Let's read on. It was their fight. And here comes the most amazing words from Itai. Look at what Itai said in verse 21. But Itai replied to the king, As long as Yahweh lives, and as long as my lord the king, that is you, that God has anointed, lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether it means life or death, there will your servants be. No, while Israel kind of abandoned God's promised anointed king and ran after Absalom, the worldly king, the foreigners, the Gittites, they would rather die with God's anointed than to return to the world and submit to Absalom. For they have not only grafted themselves into David's kingdom in good times, they have grafted themselves into the kingdom of God. Your Lord is my Lord. Your Yahweh is mine, Yahweh. What else could David say? And so David say to Itai, Go ahead, march on. So the male, the female, the little Gittites all followed God's anointed king. And the faith of the suffering king displayed his compassion and the loyalty of David's men displayed in the Gittites. So with one last look, David turned from Jerusalem and moved with his household, kind of his remaining daughters and son, probably tagging along behind him the little Solomon who's barely ten. And so he made his descent, he left Jerusalem, he descended to Kidron Valley and climbed towards Mount Olives. And there's a second encounter for David, and it's with the priests and the Levites. Look with me from 24 to 29, where the faith of this suffering king will display his reverence for God. Now, as David moved on, he, he found his allies kind of waiting for him. That's good news, right, when you see allies. The Zadok, Abitar, Ahimez, Jonathan, all the Levites, they didn't just come alone, they brought the Ark of the Covenant of God. They obviously recognized David is God's anointed, and it's not going to be Absalom. So, from their experience, the Ark follows the king. So, if the king is moving out of the city, the Ark goes with him. Furthermore, isn't that the way that it has always been? The Ark comes, the morale increases. But then, King David responded in a way that no other kings or judges of Israel will have said or will say. Look at what David said in verse 25. Look at it with me. David said, Take the ark of God back into the city 
If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, He will bring me back and let me see it and His dwelling place again. But if He says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let Him do to me whatever seems good to me. Basically, David is saying this. God does not follow the king. The king follows God. God's city is here. God stays. His ark stays. God decides that I have to leave. I will leave. If God is pleased, I'll come back. If God is not, it doesn't matter anymore. Because there's no place for David outside God's presence. So for his faith, he did what the rest would not do. He says God stays because it's the king that will follow his God. Now some people as they read on this, they say, Andrew, are you kind of overreading? Is David really trusting God or was he kind of just a depressed, hopeless old man? who just didn't care anymore. I think that would be a fair question if someone asked this. But to work out if it is faith that that David says it, or hopelessness that David says this, the only way is to dig into his heart to find what he's really thinking. And so let me read what was in David's heart in the corresponding readings that you have read together with me just now and Andrew. So let me read just four verses from Psalms 3. Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call to the Lord, he answers me from his holy mountain. No Christians, we are not unfamiliar with this experience. On one hand, we could be overwhelmed, we could be suffering, we could be discouraged, we could even be depressed. And tears can be kind of our food, night and day. But when we turn to God and we say, God, I'm struggling, or this is my issue, the faith that God has put in us that is founded on His promises, the faith that is strengthened by His Holy Spirit will turn and tell us, but He is your shoe. And He will lift your head up high to see His heavenly kingdom when the rest of the world cannot. Because that is our experience as well. And that is what David was saying. And this submission to and this trust in God by David will further unpack David's last encounter, the third one. And unlike Absalom who kind of plans in a godless way, David will plan because he has faith in God. He doesn't pray and forget and you know, just get depressed. He prays and he books. And this third encounter for David is with Hushai after praying to God. Because this time the suffering king would display his dependence on God. Look at verse 30 with me. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. Now David had been told, Ahitophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahitophel's counsel into foolishness. Mount of Olives, a place of tears of God's anointed, a place of sorrow of his followers. As David kind of journey up, he heard the news. His most trusted counselor, Ahitophel, had conspired against him. And so David cried out to God for help. 
Isn't this the David that we have kind of missed for too long, for way too long since chapter 11? That kind of faithful king who, despite his suffering, would treat the Gittites with God's compassion. The king who reveres God by refusing to treat the ark as kind of a means of victory and who prays to God when he's desperate. And even as David prays to God going up the Mount Olive, God has already prepared his answer. Right at the summit, waiting for David. Look at look at verse 22. When David arrived at the summit, when people used to worship God, Hushai the Archite was there to meet him. His robe was torn and dust was on his head. At the summit of Mount Olive, as David went up, the place where people seek God, his dear old friend Hushai the Kit- the, Kita- the Archite, you know, a dear friend and close confidant of David, he came to meet him at just the right time where David really needed people who feels how he feels and knows how he feels. He sees that old friend, tattered clothes, ash on his head, longing to follow David. But perhaps it's just at this time that David also saw God's answer prayer. And David said to Hushai this, If you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. You are too old. But really, there are already a lot of old people following David, right? It's not just one man. But he said this, If you go with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and help me by frustrating Ahitophel's advice. Here you have it. Hushai, the man who, God willing, could outwit the wisdom and the schemes and the strategies of Ahitophel. The old friend Hushai. And so David sent him back. In fact, David has four men to spot him, isn't it? David's trusted inner circle, priest Zadok and his son Ahimez, priest Abitar and his son Jonathan. Now, dear friends, notice how David responded in faith, even as he walked his darkest journey. And notice how those who wanted to follow God's anointed had to bear a cause to do so. For the Gittites, they leave their comfort. For the priests and Levites, they return with the ark to a godless king, to Hushai, he reads his dear old life as a sheep among the wolves. And so the passage ended in verse 37 that reads, So Hushai, David's confidant, arrived at Jerusalem as Absalom enters the city. Now Hushai agreed to David's request, as David and his visible troop kind of barely crosses Mount Olives into the wilderness, kind of from the site of Jerusalem, as the ark and the priest rush back and just manage to enter the tabernacle. As Hushai, you know, mourning clothes and ashes come back, have to wash up and put oil on his face, Absalom arrived, missing all of that. What will happen to David? We will have to come back over the next few weeks. But dear friends, up to now, we've been traveling on chapter 15 of Second Samuel. I want us to pause and consider what chapter 15 is really pointing us towards. Because this chapter, it is indeed the darkest journey for David. God anointed, he was betrayed by one he loved. He was rejected by his own people. He carried the judgment of God on one shoulder. He carried the covenantal promise of God on the other. He suffered the evil plans of the betrayer, and yet he was under the righteous judgment of God over him. This was David's darkest journey. And we cannot miss out the faith of God's suffering king. We cannot miss out the consequence of sin. But now I want you to listen carefully to this. 
this dark journey of David, God's anointed, it did not go unnoticed in the New Testament. For a thousand years after David, there was to be another David who will walk this same path. This other David would take the darkest journey that was ever told in human history. In fact, the darkest journey that heaven has ever witnessed. The prophet Isaiah called this man the root of Jesse in Isaiah, meaning the greater David. The gospel simply begins saying, the son of David in Matthew 1 verse 1 is called Christ, the anointed of God. Not only that, a voice from heaven blatantly or bluntly says, this is the Son of God, Matthew 3.17. And that person we know is Jesus. And on the darkest night of Jesus, Apostle John recalls the path Jesus took on that Monday Thursday, where he'll be dead in less than 24 hours. I want you to look at this with me. John 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left his disciples and crossed Kidron. Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. You might catch a bit, but as Singaporeans, this might not catch us as much. But if you're a first reader, you will catch and your eyes will blink and stare right up into it. Let me read to you again, putting in the fillers that the rest of the Gospels or the first readers will understand. But let me read John 18 verse 1 again for us. When Jesus had finished praying with his disciples, He left Jerusalem after his last supper with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane in Mount of Olives. And he and his disciples went into it. That was the darkest journey of this son of David. He left Jerusalem, he crossed the Kidron Valley and right up into Mount Olives. As we look at David's and Jesus' darkest journey, we cannot help but kind of notice some similarities. David's journey was almost like a type or an arrow that points to us of another journey that's going to be much, much darker. I'd like to invite you to just trace the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before he died on the cross with me. On that dark Thursday night, while kind of eating his supper, Last supper with disciples in Jerusalem, Jesus knew that the hour has come that he's going to die. And then while he was with his disciple Jesus, he quoted Psalm 49, 40, Psalms 41 verse 9, which is basically written by David when he says, Ah, oh, my dear people, my dear close ones betrayed me. And this is what Jesus said. On the night before Jesus died, he quoted David to his 12 disciples in John 13, 18. He said this, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shed my bread has turned against me. As you read John 13 on, he goes on saying, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Like David, Jesus would be betrayed by the one he had loved. Judas is carried one of his twelve for three years and a half, would betray Jesus with a kiss. After Judas left to betray him, Jesus gathered his remaining disciples. He prayed with them. And as we read, he left Jerusalem. He crossed Kidron Valley and went into Garden of Gethsemane and Mount of Olives. And the garden Jesus was filled with great sorrow. And he said this in, in Luke. Jesus withdrew about stone throw beyond them. He knelt down. He prayed, Father, 
if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Does it sound familiar to you? David had to suffer under the evil plans of his betrayers, and at the same time, Jesus had to suffer because of the judgment of his Father, of God, to pay for the cost and the consequence of sins. Like David, Jesus knew that he had to bear the burden of God's judgment before God's promise will be fulfilled. Jesus knew that only by drinking the cup of God's wrath that a price be paid, that eternal kingdom can come, and that his people can once again be gathered, sinless and guiltless in the eternal kingdom. But we must go on as the night darkens. Judas came with the soldiers. He captured Jesus. Jesus was put on trial before Pilate. The trial went on and on and the decision was to put Jesus to death. But those that demanded Jesus' death were not the Gentiles, but the Jews in Jerusalem. They would rather follow the king of this world than to accept God's anointed king. John 19 tells us this. Pilate, he didn't want to kill Jesus. He says, Should I crucify your king? The chief priests of the people shouted back, We have no king but Caesar. Dear friends, in 2 Samuel 15, we see that it was sin that made David take the journey. As we come to the New Testament, we realize that it is also sin that made Jesus Take the journey. In 2 Samuel 15, we see a suffering king trusting in God. In New Testament, we see also the suffering king trusting in God. We see the similarities between King David and King Jesus. But there is just one last thing we need to see. That there is a difference between the two of them. And it is the difference that makes Jesus take the journey. That he has to take the journey this very reason. The differences are why Jesus took the darkest journey from Jerusalem down to Kidron Valley up to Mount Olives and right up to the cross. For King David, he had to take the journey because of his own sin. His sin by wanting to be God, he took the place of God and sin. For Jesus, he had to take the journey because of our sin because we took the place of God and we sin against God. For David, God did not leave him abandoned. He had friends who loved him and ran with him. He was not alone. But for Jesus, God said, you have to do this alone. In fact, not only will people reject you and abandon you, I will abandon you. On the cross where Jesus, in his most anguished moment, where he has to bear the price of our sin, He cried out the words of David in Psalms 22. The words of David that become engraved as the most painful words in humanity and in heaven. Let me read this account for us. It's all for us. Matthew 27 verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Second Samuel 15, David's darkest journey. But the New Testament tells us it was a greater journey, an even darker journey for the son of David. The scripture lays before us. Jesus, the son of God, the scripture lays before us the darkest journey that was ever taken so that you and I do not have to take it. The consequence of sin. For, for, for perhaps any of us here, if we have not come to Jesus before, the time is now. Because none of us, neither you nor I, could bear that dark journey. Because it will be worse than David's. On the day of judgment, the journey that will be taken will be a journey of no return for all whose sins were not bore by Jesus on the cross. But for some of us, or many of us who have already come to Jesus, then we are called to follow our Lord wherever He goes. Like the Gittites who said, whether it means life or death, there will be your servant. Like the priests and Levites who will stand firm in the darkness with their God. As Hushai who raised his dear life as sheep among the wolves, we are called to follow our Lord as well. What the disciples could not handle, the Lord has forgiven and He says, now come follow me. Paul, in fact, puts it clearly for us in almost the same words in Romans 14. Romans 14 verse 8. Paul said this, If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. In fact, for this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so He'll be Lord of the living and the dead. The consequence of sin have been paid. What remains for the followers of Jesus is eternal kingdom of God when He comes back. But in the meantime, may we ask the Spirit of God, that God's Holy Spirit will strengthen us, that we will follow Him through, because He is the King that God has anointed. Should we take this time to pray? I'd like to just give us a moment to pray by ourselves to God. After that, our leader, service leader Andrew will lead us in prayer. Dear Lord, indeed, uh, we pray that you grant us your spirit to strengthen us, both in good times and bad, and that throughout all this, Lord, that we continue to follow Jesus and to cling on to him to the last day. And for those of us or those around us who do not yet know this joy and this privilege, we pray that they will come to know, uh, come to know you, come to follow Jesus as well, and that we will do our part to share the gospel so that this good news can be theirs to have too. What is it pray in Jesus' name? Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.